0: Members and anyone on the podcast, and welcome back to the Salem Witch Trials. So let's continue where we left off. Memorable Providences even included a description of witchcraft in Mora, Sweden. In the spring and summer of 1679, Mora had witnessed a huge witch hunt based largely on spectral evidence recounted by numerous children. 60 suspects were interrogated, 23 were burned at the stake. Such widespread participation of children, the quick spread of charges, and the use of spectral evidence all made the case seem quite unusual and extreme, though it bears uncanny similarities to the situation in Salem. As Norton has noted, consciously or unconsciously, the Salem village afflicted, had incorporated the previously recorded behaviours in their own repertoires. Even in 1692, some observers believed fraud was definitely at work. Reverend Samuel Willard questioned the credibility of the afflicted, noting the common vogue that they are scandalous persons, liars, loose in their conversation therefore not to be believed. There was some courtroom evidence to support such a charge. A supporter of Elizabeth Proctor testified that he had heard one of the girls admit that she did it for sport and they must have some sport. The nurse family made a well-organised campaign to discredit Rebecca's accusers. They produced dispositions that questioned the veracity of both Mercy Lewis and Betty Hubbard. They pointed out that Susanna Sheldon Contra dictated herself in her testimony. They gave repeated examples of the unruliness and dishonesty of Sarah Bibber, as well as the fact that she could fall into fits as often as she pleased. Historian Peter Hoffer has taken it further, calling the pack of girls a gang of juvenile delinquents. While it's possible that the erratic behaviour of the girls sparked a mass psychological phenomenon. A considerable amount of deliberate fraud eventually did take place, carried out for a range of reasons. The scholars have speculated that Abigail Williams might have accused people because of the attention she received. A good example, March 30th, when Reverend Diodat Lawson gave a guest a sermon in Salem Village, a chance for him to address a witchcraft outbreak directly, Lawson noted, that several of the bewitched girls in attendance had several sore fits in the time of public worship, which did something to interrupt me in my first prayer, being so unusual. It was indeed extremely unusual for anyone to interrupt the minister, and unheard of for children to do so. It did not stop there, for some of the girls were complaining and actually telling the minister how to run the service. After psalm was sung, Abigail Williams said to me, now stand up and name your text. And after it was read, she said, it is a long text. In the beginning of a sermon, Mrs. Pope, a woman afflicted, said to me, now there is enough of that. And in the afternoon, Abigail Williams, upon my referring to my doctrine, said to me, I know no doctrine you had. If you didn't name one, I have forgot it. Only when these girls and women were suffering from the effects of witchcraft could they break the bounds of Puritan society, even questioning the minister's doctrine. Ah, that's interesting, isn't it? Anne Putnam Jr. went so far as to hint that Lawson might be a witch by associating with a familiar. The minister noted that during his sermon, Anne said there was a yellow bird sat on my hat and it hung on a pin in the pulpit, but those that were by restrained her from speaking loud about it. As John Demos had demonstrated, Elizabeth Knapp exhibited similar behaviour when she was afflicted in Groton in 1671. This case was well known in 1692 because Elizabeth's minister, a young Samuel Willard, had published a detailed account of his efforts to ease her sufferings. Willard described the performances Knapp gave. "'to the gathered household audience. "'She was seized in such ways "'that six persons could hardly hold her. "'But she leaped and skipped about the house perforce, "'roaring and yelling deadly sighs. "'She would strike those who tried to hold her "'and spit in their faces, "'bark like a dog and bleated like a calf, "'and would verbally assault Willard "'with a deep, grum voice "'that seemed to come from deep within her. Demas was obviously a convincing argument that Nat was suffering from conversion disorder. Still, questions remain as to the degree to which the actions of such young girls were voluntary and deliberate. It's quite possible that the involvement of Betty Paris and Abigail Williams in the witch hunt can be explained entirely as a case of mass hysteria. Both Betty and Abigail disappear from the proceedings relatively early on. In late March, her parents sent Betty away from the village to the Salem town home of Stephen Seawall. Sewall's a distant kinsman, as his brother Samuel was married to Paris's cousin. Sending Betty out of town removed her from the spotlight and the interaction with other girls, and apparently it led her to recovery. For she's not mentioned in the proceedings after this time. Abigail Williams, too, <clears throat> would soon vanish from the proceedings making her last appearance before the court on June the 30th. Their exit marks the end of one stage, let's say, of the witch hunt, and the beginning of the second phase, during which deceptive, if not fraudulent, behaviour was a much more real possibility. With the departure of Betty and Abigail, the majority of the witchcraft accusations came from a group of six girls. Anne Putnam Jr., Betty Hubbard, Mary Walcott, Mercy Lewis, Susanna Sheldon, and Mary Warren, all between 17 and 20, except for 12-year-old Anne. Most of the contemporary critics of the trials, who observed them first-hand, believed that some degree of deliberate fakery was involved with these older girls who claimed to be afflicted. Their behaviour in the court often appears to have a stage-managed sort of quality to it, Consider the case of Mary Warren, 20-year-old servant of John Elizabeth Proctor. She was initially one of the sufferers, yet she soon switched sides, claiming that the girls did but dissemble. This change of heart apparently took place after John Proctor either beat her or threatened to do so for her accusations. Conveniently, soon Mary Warren's spectre was hurting the girls, so a complaint was filed against her. When she was brought before the court, the girl suffered convulsions. Warren immediately fell into a fit as well, and appeared to be dumbstruck. Only days later, in jail, would she be able to speak, saying the proctors were witches. She claimed the couple had tortured her and tricked her into touching the book, that she, only now realised, had to be the devil's book. Still in prison three weeks later, Warren had severe fits, and accused several more women of witchcraft. There was no further word of charges of witchcraft against Warren, and she returned to the court as one of the most active accusers. What exactly did Warren mean when she said, the girls did but dissemble? Edward and Sarah Bishop and Mary Etsy testified that when they were jailed with Warren, she said that the judges should take no notice of what the girls said. She warned that, when I was afflicted, I thought I saw the apparition of a hundred persons... But her head was distempered at the time, and she could not tell what she said. Yet, when she was well again, she could not say that she saw any of the apparitions at the time aforesaid. While dissemble could mean to deceive, it could also mean to disguise or to pretend. Warren believed she had been distracted, that is, suffering some sort of mental illness when she experienced the symptoms. She assumed the other bewitched sufferers a similar, perhaps a case on mass hysteria. Now that she was well, she tried to set the record straight, but in doing so, she questioned the legitimacy of her testimony testimony of all of them. And of course, one can choose not to believe Warren, to view a supposed distraction simply as a way to avoid being beaten by John Proctor and also to get the court to overlook the damning false testimony she had already given. Regardless of whether the torments were real or an act, the actions of the girls toward Mary Warren, her response seemed quite calculated. The girls convulsed almost on cue. Faced with no alternative, she replied in kind. Uncertain of what to say, she pretended to be mute. Several unpleasant weeks in the Salem jail would provide her with time to think and to realise that, given the alternatives. She was better off casting her lot with the accusers. After all, both the proctors were in jail, so she was safe from the threat of further beatings. By the middle of May, Warren was again suffering fits and accusing more people of witchcraft. Warren's charges and testimony against Abigail Soames would mark the first use of the touch test in the Salem court. As can be seen in the questioning of Soames, the judges began to standardise these procedures even before the Court of Boyer and Terminer first met. It would be an important turning point in the trials, for under Warren's leadership, it was a process used to convict a good number of witches, usually in combination with the evil eye. Evil eye, hmm. Yeah. Both would appear to be carefully managed courtroom procedures. Justices Hathorn and Corwin experimented with the touch test on May 13th, during Abigail Sioux's examination. Witnessed by Mary Warren. Soames casting her eye on the Warren struck her into a dreadful fit and bit her so dreadfully that the like was never seen on any of the afflicted, which the said Warren charged the said Soames with doing of, saying that she, said Soames, told her this day would be the death of her. The judge commanded Soames to take Warren by the hand and she immediately recovered the court recorder noted that this experiment was tried three times and the issue the same. The judges had tried to reverse the experiment by asking Warren to take Simone's hand, or Sioux's hand, but Warren would go into a fit when she tried to do so. Mary claimed that Abigail's spectre would not allow her to touch the accused. The fact that this pattern of evil being healed by the accused touch was repeated three times indicates that it was indeed an experiment. Once perfected at Salem's examination, it would be regularly used by the Court of Oyer and Terminer, providing key evidence to convict Bridget Bishop and many others. Almost invariably, Mary Warren would be among the bewitched to participate in these tests. Thomas Brattle described the science the judges said was behind the touch test, the Salem Justices, at least some of them do assert that the cure of the afflicted persons is a natural effect of this touch. And they are so well instructed in the Cartesian philosophy and in the doctrine of effluvia that they undertake to give a demonstration how this touch does cure the afflicted persons. And the account they give of it is this, that by this touch the venomous and malignant particles that were ejected from the eye do, by this means, return to the body whence they came, and so leave the afflicted persons pure and whole. Battle's disagreement with the judges was not that they believed in witches, or that they were not scientific in their approach to the evidence, rather, he felt they were misusing Cartesian philosophy, which led to wrongful verdicts. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but some have pointed to the actions of the court as evidence of how backwards, yeah, backwards and superstitious people were in the 17th century. Nothing could be further from the truth. The judges were highly educated for their time. The use of spectral evidence was part of a broader scientific effort to gain knowledge of the soul and the invisible world. Given there were no set trial procedures, there were no certain ways to detect a witch. They even carried out what they called experiments in the use of the evil eye and the witch's touch. These tests seem laughable, simply, on the surface, and they do. I laugh at them on the surface. But in carrying them out, the judges drew up some of the latest scientific advances. Advances. oh, I can't speak, and were supported by some of the leading English religious, legal, and philosophical minds of the day. No less a scientist than Robert Boyle had been studying both curing touches and the evil eye. In 1666... Oh, that's original, isn't it? 1666. Mm. Boyle noted, in the origin of forms and qualities according to the corpuscular philosophy, that spirits and souls have some ability to interact with the physical world. The same year, Boyle had been among a group of natural phlo- philosophers in London who had witnessed Valentine Rakes, the so called Irish st- stroker performed several miraculous cures simply by touch. Boyle, the president of Royal Society, was so impressed that he endorsed the efficiency of great rake's cures. It was also among a group of early scientists and theologians trying to prove the existence of Satan and the supernatural world. For if Satan did not exist, how long would it be before people doubted the existence of God who had created Satan? Which is true. The touch test had been used to convict the Lowstoft witches, who were tried before no less on authority than Chief Justice Sir Matthew Hale at Bury St Edmunds. He accepted that test even when it seemingly proved to be unreliable. When one of the Lowstoft Sufferers was blindfolded, her torments were ended with equal success by the touch of random observer and by the touch of the accused. Remarkably, Supporters argued successfully that the afflicted had been bewitched in believing that they were touched by one of the witches. Clearly, many considered the touch test to be dubious use. When it was employed in Andover in 1692, observers took the precaution of blindfolding the Trouble Girls. Though in this case, they did seem to have successfully identified the accused. Thomas Brattle and others remained sceptical. He mused. I know a man that will venture to one with any Selamite whatever that let the matter be duly managed, and the afflicted person shall come out of her fit upon the touch of most religious hand in Salem. He also noted that according to some Salem courtroom observers, sometimes the touch of the accused did not always immediately relieve the torments. If the judges ordered the sufferer to grab harder and harder, eventually the suffering would end. Brattle had similar concerns with the evil eye, wondering why, only, the supposedly bewitched afflicted were sent into fits by the poisoned look of the accused. Brattle concluded, This Salem philosophy some men may call the new philosophy, but I think it rather deserves the name of Salem superstition and sorcery, and it is not fit to be named in the land of such light as New England is. Hmm. Given the high drama of Salem Courtroom, it's easy to forget that witchcraft was a religious crime and in some countries was tried before a religious court. The theological explanations need therefore to be considered. As Boyer and Nissenbaum have suggested, at other time, the behaviour of the bewitched could have been taken in a very different way, as an example of religious enthusiasm. They point... To how in 1734 35, the youths of Northampton, Massachusetts suffered fits, terrors, and distempers, similar to those of Salem, actually. Rather than interpreting them as evidence of witchcraft, Young, Reverend Jonathan Edwards, saw them as the agony of sinners seeking spiritual rebirth. Edwards' contemporaries did likewise, interpreting the behaviours as signs that these young people were religious seers rather than the victims of Satan. A generation earlier, Reverend Samuel Parris interpreted much, the same evidence at Satan's hand. The response of the ministers and their communities reflects the difference of the times. In Salem and New England, more generally, 1692, was a difficult and dangerous time, and Samuel Parris anticipated Satan's attack. Jonathan Edwards and his congregation... Lived in far more secure times at the dawn of the religious revival known as the Great Awakening. There had been relatively few efforts over the years to explain the behaviour of the afflicted during the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening a century later. People generally seemed content to accept it as religious ecstasy. Samuel Paris was a Satan in Salem village because of the divisions. That had torn his congregation quite far apart. In Salem Possessed, Byron Nissenbaum suggests that the pattern of accusation in the early stages of the outbreak, as well as the factionalism, were rooted in the society, economy, and the geographical sort of way Salem Village was. They noted that the men who had lodged the formal charges of witchcraft on behalf of the afflicted girls were not just supporters of Samuel Paris and covenanting members of his church but tended to come from the poorer western part of Salem village. The people who were accused tended to be more of the up-and-coming eastern part of town. Recently, scholars have raised concern over specifics of these geographic and economic arguments. Still, the basic arguments of Salem possessed remain intact. Witchcraft in, Euro- Witchcraft in Europe and America was tied to the economic uncertainties of the early modern period. It is not a coincidence. By the age of which Hunts also saw the birth and development of capitalism. In the later 17th century, capitalism and the beginnings of industrialization, in turn, led to the start of the consumer revolution. A range of impressive and fashionable manufactured goods quickly became available for those who could afford them. It was a time of economic change, dislocation, with both winners and losers. Samuel Paris described witches as being envious individuals, people who coveted the fine line and a fine life and superior possessions of the neighbours. In 1692, people confessed that they had been tempted by, or even sold their souls to Satan for a range of commodities. Satan could not have done better than to entice poor young girls such as Abigail Hobbes, the orphan Abigail Williams, or the slave Tituba, with fine things and fine clothes. 14-year-old Stephen Johnson looked forward to being the height of fashion, wearing a pair of French four shoes, promised in return for selling his body and soul to Satan. The 17th century was also a time of the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic uh, Catholic Counter-Reformation, and associated religious warfare, an age of great spiritual upheaval. In Salem Village, the coming together of religious and economic tensions can be seen in such matters as a resistance to a disliked minister, to whom people would refuse ministerial rates of firewood. Despite the oppositions to Paris, in 1692 the members of his church united in support of the embattled minister and the bewitched. Only adult men could swear out a legal complaint, and recent scholarship has demonstrated that the Salem Village Church members were very active in filing complaints against those Cried out upon for witchcraft. The male and female church members were also vigorous in providing dispositions and testimony in support of the bewitched accusations. In all of these actions, these covenant signers almost invariably aimed their charges and testimony outward against people, people who were not members of their church. Nearly three quarters of the village men, 13 out of total of 17, originally signed the village church covenant either initiated complaints or gave evidence against an accused witch. This group was dominated by people from the west of Salem village and the Putnam family, the leading family of the western part of the village. Ten of the thirteen initial covenant signers who swore out complaints or testified against witches lived west of the meeting house, while the three who lived on the east were all Putnam's. So the leadership of the church was filed charges of witchcraft and supported by the afflicted. This came from the western part of Salem Village and the Putnam family. In the vanguard was Thomas Putnam Jr. who made complaints against at least 35 people and testified against 17. His active involvement resulted from the affliction of his wife and senior, his daughter and junior. Servant, Mer- Mercy Lewis, Mercy is very famous for hers, all three would be prominent among the accusers. Thomas also had an official role in the trials, serving as the most productive legal secretary, recording 120 dispositions during the proceedings. Some documents were his own testimony, but he also prepared dispositions for 38 others involving cases against 29 people. The dispositions written by the Putnam used remarkably consistent phrasing to describe the actions of the accused and the afflictions they indicted. Furthermore, it is clear from different colour of ink used within an individual disposition that they were written down on two or three separate occasions. Apparently, they were mostly recorded when disposing the witness, though details were added when preparing to use them before the grand jury in a trial. Putnam's dispositions had a very high success rate in getting grand jurors to return indictments against the accused. Given the bewitchment of Putnam's family, the formulaic nature of his dispositions and the additions to them, well, one cannot help but wonder if he embellished the documents to strengthen cases. At the very least, one can say that Putnam was far from a disinherited an objective party, and that he and his family played a significant role in shaping the course of the trials. Given the prominence of the Putnam, his family, and other church leaders from the western part of the village, the proceedings must have seemed to observers of the day to have at least some geographical as well as factional flavour to them. And that's the end of that part, the guise of the Salem Witch Trials. So when we come back, we will then look into um, the, I guess, kind of like the, the way that it played out regarding this family and that family, and why it might have occurred and why it might have come from one family and not the other family, let's see, Because it is really a lot about politics and religion. I mean... Um, there was also the fact that they didn't want any Catholics anymore either. And, you know, when they said, like, a witch, um, you could tell they were a witch because they couldn't say the Lord's Prayer. It wasn't that they couldn't say the Lord's Prayer. What it were is that um, when you are learnt it, if you're a Catholic, you generally learn it in different ways. Uh, mostly, I think it goes by uh, Spanish now. But Latin was the actual text of the time, so they'd learn the Lord's Prayer in Latin because that was the Catholic way. But when the Christianity came into play, um, they were to then read the Lord's Prayer in English. But the problem was, it wasn't the same. There was always, they said, oh, they couldn't get past the word trespassers. Well, it's not that they couldn't get past that word. It's the fact that word just did not exist in the Catholic Latin way of saying it, it did not exist. It was a word very unheard of, very hard to say. Especially when you're talking to, I don't know, someone in the 60s, 70s, who have said the Latin verse all their lives and now all of a sudden they know no, you have to say it this way. Think about that. We know from, from psychology, we know the best time to learn a language is when we're younger, not when we get older. Because when we get older... Less chance of our memory sort of sustaining it, learning from it and developing. When we are younger, our mind is still developing it takes it all on board and it learns it. It kind of comes natural to the function of us growing. But not when you're older. When you're older, it's so much harder. And especially when you're looking at these ladies in the 50s, 60s, 70s that love spoke Latin. Their whole life, they'll have said the Lord's Prayer in Latin their whole life, never had this word trespass. And all of a sudden, they are thrown, say it like this, with these words in it. You can understand, it's kind of daunting. They're not going to be able to just do that. It would take time, you know. But that would also classify them as a witch. And it's just not true. It really isn't. It's the fact that that word stumped them. Because it just wasn't in the way of saying it in Latin, that's all. So that's the next part of the Salem Witch Trials. And yes, there was a lot of fraud in the Salem Witch Trials. There were a lot of girls being idiots. Why they did what they did, I don't know. but They definitely caused a mess, didn't they? And caused some deaths by doing what they did. And it was just uncalled for. So, yeah. Thank you for listening and many blessings.